All right, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, and it won't be the last time we ever look at the book of Ephesians, but it will be the last time for a while. It was one of my great delights uh, when I came on board for Pastor Jason to say, look, I've been, I've been working my way through the book of Ephesians, and I wonder if you would be willing to finish uh, what I began. And so we started looking uh, back in uh, June, end of June, at the middle of chapter 5, when Paul began talking about what it looked like to walk worthy of the gospel that we have embraced. And we, we took 10 messages to examine what Paul had to say about displaying the gospel and the peace of the gospel, the shalom of God, what it looked like to display that in the most important relationships in our life, what it looked like in our marriages, what did it look like for a husband and wife to cultivate a marriage that was marked by shalom. And then we talked about what it would look like in our homes with our families. We examined the idea of the extended household that Paul was writing to, and we saw that the gospel transformed the most fundamental reality in the Greek world, in the world of Ephesus, as the gospel began to display itself, not just between a husband and a wife, but as that shalom began to to spread and to transform and to mark the entire household. And so what did it look like in our households with our children especially? And then uh, Paul moved beyond that to what it looked like uh, in our vocations. What did it look like in the relationships that we would spend virtually all of our waking hours in? Not just in our marriage and not just with our children, but what would this shalom that the gospel brought actually look like when we took it out into the way we lived our life in the workplace, whether we were a master or a servant? And we saw the transforming power of that grace. And then as we got into chapter 6, verse 10, uh, we spent nine messages together looking at the context in which all of this shalom that we were displaying in our marriages and in our homes and in our vocations actually looked like. What was the context in which all of this was happening? And we noted that it was in the context of a cosmic spiritual war. And uh, we were in, in many ways stunned at the global impact of that conflict. And we noted that as we are to deliver the news of that shalom, that, that peace, that gospel peace, and as we were to display the beauty of what that looked like, we were to do it in the darkest and most dangerous corners of Satan's kingdom. This was not to be displayed primarily in the safety of a church. This was not to be displayed primarily in the enclave or or behind the walls of some Christian community. This was to be displayed in the darkest and in the deepest and in the most dangerous parts of the kingdom of God. And so all of a sudden, as we got to the end of the book, we began to see that what Paul was talking about was actually a church on the move. 
that this was actually a group of people who had been called to invade the kingdom of darkness and to take the light of the gospel and to take the message of peace to people who were in darkness and who were in bondage and who desperately needed what the gospel would bring. And we noted that as the church would take the gospel into those deepest, darkest, and most dangerous corners of Satan's kingdom, it would come under severe attack. Have you ever wondered why, after you became a Christian, it almost seemed to get worse for you than before? I mean, did you ever notice that as you committed to Christ, or maybe you you became a Christian and you just kind of sat there for a period of time, and that God worked in your heart, God got hold of your heart, the Word of God came alive to you, and you said to the Lord, I want to be more than just a person who sits in a pew. I want to be fully in for the gospel's sake. And there was great joy that came into your heart as you made that commitment to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, it's like your life blew up. You have never faced the kind of opposition. You've never endured the kind of pressure as a Christian that you began to endure. Have you ever wondered why all of a sudden your marriage came under attack or your family came under attack or some other area of life came under attack? And the reason was or is because you are in a global spiritual conflict and you just engaged. And as you engaged, so did the enemy. So what do we need when we engage for the gospel's sake in this incredible spiritual advance when we take the message of the gospel and the love of Christ and the peace of God into the very darkest and deepest corners of Satan's kingdom. We need armor. And we spent nine sermons looking at a majestic armor that was won for us and worn by a champion. There is a champion that represents all of God's people. And he went into the very heart of that darkness and he pierced the darkness and he wore the armor that is described for us in Ephesians chapter six and he won our salvation. And that champion obviously is none other than our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And we looked at what it actually looks like for a believer to wear that armor because we saw Paul wearing it at the end of chapter 6 when he is in chains asking us to pray that the gospel would advance. But here's my question. We are expecting Paul to wear the armor and it to work because he's an apostle. But what does it actually look like for an everyday believer just like us? What does it look like for me and what does it look like for you when we are called to take the gospel into those dark places, into that dangerous place, into the kingdom of darkness? What does it look like for us? Is there a model? And there is. And it's right here in verse 21. Paul said, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. In other words, so you, you will have an accurate understanding of what's really going on in my life. I am sending you Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, and he will tell you everything. 
I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So who is Tychicus and what was he like? Who is Tychicus and what was he like? Tychicus occurs three times in our New Testament, here and in two or in three other places. So there are four places where he is referenced. So other than here, in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, we meet him for the first time. And he is a traveling companion to the Apostle Paul on the third missionary journey, which is the journey where Paul went through Asia. And so Tychicus was probably a convert that heard Paul's message, that heard the gospel, and became a Christian and began traveling with the Apostle Paul. And so he was a convert from Asia Minor. The second time we hear about Tychicus uh, is in Titus chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul says to Titus, who is in charge of the church at Crete, a very difficult church, a church that is in its infancy, a church that Titus had gone to in order to set things in order. And Paul says to Titus, I am reassigning you. I need you for gospel ministry in uh, Nicopolis, and I am sending Tychicus to you to take your place, to come and labor there with those that you have raised up in, uh, in Crete. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, uh, Paul says, as he writes his last letter, he says to Timothy, I have sent Tychicus to help you at Ephesus. And so you have this man who was a convert from Asia. He heard and believed Paul's gospel. He was a co-laborer in ministry. He served with Paul in the ministry of the gospel. And he was committed to suffering for the gospel. He suffered with Paul on the, the, the journeys and in the ministry of the word. So that's who this man is. He's a convert, he's a co-laborer, and he's committed to suffering. But what was he like? You know, you and I have an identity. We are Christians. Some of you were born in South Carolina. I talked to somebody this morning who was born in Easley. I live in Easley. So I met an Easlonian or an Easleslian, or I don't even know what we call these people, but they're from Easley. They live in Easley. You have an identity. Maybe you're from Pennsylvania, or maybe you're from New York, or maybe you grew up in South Carolina. You have an identity in terms of who you are. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're defined by your job. You're uh, a doctor, or you're a nurse, or you're a teacher, or you're a businessman. You have some identity that is yours. You're a Christian. That's a massive identity. But your identity is coupled with who you are and what you are like. What are you like as a Christian? What are you like as a laborer in the gospel? What are you like as a person? And, and Paul gives us that insight into Tychicus. Tychicus wasn't just a convert, and he wasn't just a co-laborer, and he wasn't just someone who was willing to suffer. He was someone who was marked by love. He was someone who was marked by love. Paul says this, I am sending Tychicus, the beloved brother, and when he gets there, he will tell you everything. 
We don't know a lot about Tychicus, but what we do know is this. However he lived his life and whatever he did as a convert and as a laborer in the gospel and as a co-laborer and co-sufferer for the gospel with Paul, he loved people. And he was a beloved brother. And then you see something else in the text. He didn't just love fervently. He served God faithfully. He was a faithful minister in the Lord. Paul says, you want to know what Tychicus is like? You want to know who he was? Well, he was a convert that came to the Lord when I was out in Asia traveling and preaching the gospel. And then he became a committed co-laborer, a valued co-laborer. He traveled with me He traveled and served in the gospel, and he was willing to suffer sacrificially for the gospel. But if you want to know what he was like, if you want to know what the flavor of his life was like, here it is. He loved others, and he served the Lord faithfully. So let me ask you a very pointed question this morning, and that is this. What are you known by? I mean, if if we were to just sit down and talk, what would mark your life? Would you be known as a person who loves others? Would you be known as a person who loves the Lord? Would you be known for your faithful and committed and sacrificial service for the gospel and for the body of Christ that the gospel formed? Would you be known as someone who loves other people And would you be known as someone who faithfully serves other people? Because this is what Tychicus was known for. And so that brings me to what I want to talk about this morning, and that is this. How does this kind of a life develop in the kind of context that we read about in the New Testament? This this was not something that was was taught, this was not something that was cultivated in a sterile environment or in the comforts of, of sort of a safe place. This was obviously a life that was formed in the middle of conflict. This was a life that was formed and a character that was established in the middle of very difficult circumstances. How did this happen in Tychicus's life? And more importantly, how does it happen in ours? In other words, we could say it this way. What are the marks of a gospel-worthy life and what produces them? What are the marks of a gospel-worthy life like Tychicus and what produces them? And I think you can see the beginnings of an answer to that in verse 23 when Paul says, I I want something for you. As I send you Tychicus and you experience something from him, I I want you to hear something from him I want you to read something that I'm going to put in his hands for you. I'm going to put the letter of Ephesians in his hands to you, and he's going to bring it to you. So I want you to to hear something from him about me. I want you to receive something from him, from me, but I also want you to experience something as you begin to recognize and you begin to experience his love and his faithful service. And then I want you to ask yourself, how do I become like that? And Paul's answer is that a gospel-worthy life is shaped by three essential things, relationships that display the peace of God. Paul said, listen, if you want to display the love of God in a way that is credible and you want 
to display the shalom of God in a way that is desirable. And if you want people not just to hear the truth, but to actually experience what it is like to be loved by God, then they need to experience shalom from you. And so the first thing that happens here is Paul says, peace be to the brothers. And he's talking here about relationships that display the peace of God. This has been a major theme in the book. Paul opened the book with peace. He ends the book with peace. And all through the book, he has been talking about this amazing shalom that Jesus Christ established between God and us. And because it is between God and us, it can also be between us and one another. We are to display the peace of God. We are to guard the unity of the body in the bond of peace. And so Paul says the mark of a gospel-worthy life begins with relationships that display the peace of God. And that comes out of a faith that consistently displays itself in genuine affection and selfless love for others. Notice how he goes on in verse 23. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. This is not peace, love, and faith. This is peace and love that's accompanied or sourced from a certain thing, faith. In other words, Paul's saying this, when you have faith that is genuine, it needs to display itself in love. So when you talk about a gospel-worthy life like the one that Tychicus modeled, as he wore the armor in very difficult places, he displayed relationships that were marked by peace, and he believed, his belief, his faith displayed itself in genuine affection and selfless love for others. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul said, I have heard about your faith in Christ and your love for the saints. And your faith in Christ and the love for the saints that flows out of that faith in Christ is well known. Everybody knows about this. Can I ask you a question? And I'm not trying to be pokey here because it's, it's not just your question, it's mine. When people think about Palmetto Baptist Church, because this is corporate, right? This isn't just about the individual Ephesians. This is about the church at Ephesus. When people think about Palmetto Baptist Church or when they come and visit or when they encounter us in the marketplace of life, are, are they impacted by relationships that are flavored with peace and by a faith that displays itself in love? Do they experience love from you and from me? Well, what's going to fuel that is a life empowered by the Spirit and enabled by grace. And you can see this in verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace be to the brothers and love with faith and peace and love with faith come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that has to be energized. Grace is more than just unmerited favor. When we think about grace, generally speaking, you and I have grown up in contexts, when we talk about grace, we talk about grace in terms of the undeserved favor that comes into our life from God. But when Paul talks about it, he actually talks, it about, talks about it as enablement. Where in the world am I going to find the strength 
to maintain shalom in my marriage? How in the world am I going to get the strength to do it with my kids? Or how am I going to get to do it with my, my mom and dad? How am I going to display all of that? How in the world am I going to consistently love other people when my own life is such a mess? How is this going to happen? And Paul's answer is, you are going to need an enablement. You are going to need someone other than you to put strength in you that will enable you to love when it's hard or to maintain the peace when everything in you wants to disrupt it. You and I don't have the ability to do this on our own. And Paul says, you need grace. So if you want to know what a gospel-worthy life looks like, if you, if you want to know what a Tychicus would look like in our midst, if he were here, it would look like this. It would look like a man whose relationships display the grace or the peace of God and whose faith displays itself in genuine affection and selfless love for others and, and whose life is fueled by an enablement of grace that comes from the gospel. And that brings us to the second thing that Paul has been leading to. And, and I have to say to you that this is a phrase that has captured my attention for months I know what the marks of a gospel-worthy life are, but, but what motivates it? What, what's strong enough to fuel it for a lifetime? You know, when our, you remember uh, when our kids go to camp, and some of you have been to camp, and you get to camp, and you have this wonderful week, and somebody gets up and preaches, and it's like you're away from everything in your life, you're away from your home, you're away from all the pressures, and, and you get there, and the Word of God is at work, and you're with other people that you're not normally with, and during that period of time, God does a work in your heart, and by the end of the week, your heart is responsive to the Lord. The Word's been consistently at work in your life, and you make a life-changing decision. You get to camp, and you listen to the word, and you wrestle with the spirit, and by the end of the week, you surrender, and you make a life-changing decision. And six months later, what happened to that decision? It's gone. Something happened. You know, this man, this is the change I'm going to make, and you come home, and you, you, you sit down, and you tell others about it, and, and this, this really... Is, has been such a phenomenon in, 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 in certain circles that there's actually a word for it. It's called a camp high. We go to camp, we, we get on this spiritual high, and it lasts for a month, maybe it lasts for two months, maybe it lasts for three months, and then it's gone. You say, well, that's what happens to teenagers. No, that's what happens to us. We just don't go to camp. That's what happens to us, isn't it? Man, you're reading the scriptures, you're, 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 maybe you're listening um, to a sermon on the radio, maybe you're driving to work and you're listening to his radio and there's a song that comes on and it grips your heart and you say to the Lord, Lord, I am done wrestling with you. I surrender. I, I am done uh, resisting your spirit. I want, I want to be all in. I want to be like that Tychicus guy that Pastor Sam talked about. 
I want my life to display the peace of God. I want the faith that results in the love of others. And I want the enablement that I obviously don't have in my own heart. I want to be all in. And by God's grace, God, I'm telling now, I'm in. I'm surrendering. I'm, I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm making the decision. And I'm moving forward for you. I'm abandoning this. I'm committing to this. I'm jumping in this. And, and we do well for a week or we do well for a month or we do well for a couple of months and, and, and somehow over time we find ourselves right back. And maybe it's at church or maybe it's at a, a meeting or maybe it's back in our car and we hear another song and our heart is gripped again and we do the same thing over again and, and this time it's maybe two months or three months, but pretty soon we're back again. And after a while, it's like, why even try? Why even try? And by the way, that's why even in a gospel preaching church like this, many of us can come week after week after week and we enjoy the preaching and we enjoy one another, but we aren't going to get up because we've already gotten up eight times and it hasn't lasted. And so I want to know in my own life, because this doesn't just happen to church members, this happens to pastors, this happens to me. So I want to know, God, what is it that's going to fuel the kind of living that I so obviously see in Paul and in Tychicus and that I'm so frustrated doesn't show up in my life? How could these guys do that and I can't even do this? I mean, Paul's doing this from a prison cell. Tychicus is wandering around Asia Minor. He is suffering the same ridicule and the same oppression that Paul is suffering. And he still serves, and he's still faithful, and he still loves. And they're doing it under these amazingly oppressive conditions in the deep, dark places of Satan's kingdom, and I can't even do it in the comfort of my home in Easley, South Carolina. How in the world does that work? Why is it so hard for me here to do what I see there? Have you ever honestly felt that way in your life? I can't believe I'm the only one. But that's really the question. And so I, my question as I came to this text and I wrestled through this paragraph is this, what will fuel the kind of Tychicus lifestyle that all of us so desperately want but have not been able to find? And I think it's this. I think it's in the last phrase of the book. Paul says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. That's me. I love Jesus. And that's you. You love Jesus. But there's something else here. He says this, grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a certain kind of love. And he uses the word incorruptible. Do you see that word in your text? That word captured my thinking. What in the world is incorruptible love. And it's used, that word is used in 1 Corinthians at the end of the book when Paul talks about the fact that, that, that something happens to our physical bodies. Our physical bodies age. 
And, and for most of us, they don't age as well as we would like, right? Look in the mirror if you're wondering about how well you're aging. And, and your body just doesn't do the kinds of things that at one time it did. I mean, you know, most of us that are, you know, past 40, we don't run around climbing trees. I mean, think about the last time as an adult that you climbed a tree. I mean, if you're a teenager here, I would bet, unless your dad is in a certain kind of job, you haven't seen your dad out in the backyard climbing a tree. Why? Because when we were kids, we climbed trees all the time. I remember growing up on a farm. We lived in trees. Not really, but I mean, we were, we were like little, you know, people like crawled around in trees. And I can't remember the last time I climbed a tree. And, and, and my wife is glad that I'm not out there climbing around trees. I, I, you know, we just don't. Why? Because our bodies have aged. You know, you, you know, some of you guys that were high school athletes and you're trying to relive the glory days, do you realize that your body is refusing to cash the checks that your mind keeps writing on the basketball court? They're like not sufficient, there's no, no not sufficient funds in this account, right? <laughs> not sufficient strength here. And you thought you could dunk and all you did was you sprained every muscle in your body. And you had to take three weeks off of work. And you had to invent a story that made sense to people, right? So now you've compounded stupidity with sin, lying, to cover what you did. It's not, you know, sometimes our kids walk around with a pocket full of stupid and pull it out and want us to look at it. Well, sometimes we do the same thing, right? And, and so Paul says, this is what's going on in your body. It's corrupting. It's degenerating, and you're going to put it into the ground one day, and it's, it's going to become even more corruptible. But one day, God is going to raise it up, and it's going to be what? Incorruptible. It's never going to diminish in its beauty. It's never going to be damaged in its physique. It's never going to be depleted from its full strength. That's what it means to be incorruptible. And that's what Paul says when he says, you and I need to fuel all of what we see in Tychicus that we want in our life. We need to fuel that with this kind of love for Christ. A love that never diminishes in its intensity. A a love that is never diluted in its sincerity. And it is never displaced in its preeminence in our lives. Paul said, you know how to develop this kind of a life and to fuel it? Here's how you fuel it. You fuel it with a certain kind of love for Jesus. A love that is the supreme love of your life. A love that, that, that takes the center stage in your life. It is not just an important part of your life. It is the essence of your life. It's not just prominent in your life. It's preeminent. There is no greater love. There is no greater loyalty. There is no deeper friendship. There is no deeper commitment than the commitment 
that you have out of a heart of affection for Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will fuel this kind of living. And by the way, when Paul finishes Ephesians, he's talking to people who have that because they never had anything else. They were brought out of darkness. They were, they were rescued out of the most difficult and, and horrific of circumstances. And their feet had been placed on a rock. They had been taken out of chapter 2, out of deadness and out of darkness and out of blindness. And they had been given everything. And what came out of their heart, what came out of their faith in Jesus Christ was this white hot passionate love for him. Do you remember when that was true of you? You know, we have maybe a small human illustration of what that should look like. You know, if you're married, do you remember the very first time you fell in love with your wife? I mean, you were like, wow. Man, I don't know if I have a chance, but Lord, I will go to the mission field. I will name my kid Adonira. I will name my second kid William Carey. I will, I will live in a hut. And, and all of a sudden, there was this intensity of affection and affinity that came into your heart for the person that later became your husband or your wife. And Paul is saying to you, and he's saying to me, do you still have that? for Jesus. Do you still have that for Jesus? And that brings us really to the danger that Paul uh, is guarding against here, but that came into the life of this church. You know, there's a second letter to the Ephesians in our Bible, and it's in the book of Revelation. The first letter was written by Paul. The second letter was actually written by Jesus Christ himself. And so as you look at this second letter to the church at Ephesus, here's the context of that letter. If you end Ephesians chapter 6, and Paul says to them, listen, I'm sending you someone, and, and here's what his life is like. His life is marked by love, and his life is marked by faithful service, and that should mark your life. And in order for that to happen, your life is going to have to be fueled by a never dying, never diminishing love and affection and affinity for Jesus. And Paul closes, signs, you know, the letter and hands it to Tychicus. If you fast forward 30 years, some of you've been married for 30 years. Beth and I uh, just had our 35th anniversary. So we've been married for 30 years. Five years. Some of you have been married for more than that. In the lifetime of our marriage, whatever started in Ephesians 6 has changed by Revelation 2. Just to put it in context, we're looking at about a 30-year period of time. And here is what Jesus said to this church in Revelation 2. Chapter 2, I know your works, I know your toil, I know your endurance. I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil. I know that you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. I know that you endure patiently and you bear up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. In other words, Jesus said, look, I know all about you as a church. 
I know about your excellent service for me. I know about your excellent stand for truth. And I know about your excellent steadfast commitment, even in the face of pressure and suffering. I know about all of your excellence. But I have this against you. And whatever he has against them is so big to him that if they don't fix it, here's what he says at the end of verse 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I mean, this is stunning. Jesus is saying, look, when I, when I get in your church and I walk around in it and I see it and I know it, I am impressed by your excellent stand for truth. I am impressed by your excellent service, your toil, and your labor in the gospel. And I am thankful for your excellent steadfastness, even under pressure and trouble, but it's not enough because of what's missing. And what's missing is so big that if you don't fix what's missing, I am going to shut down this church at Ephesus. I mean, that's, that's Jesus talking. That's not Paul talking. That's not John talking. That's not even the angel talking. That's Jesus talking. So what is it that Jesus has become so concerned about? And you can see it right in the middle of that text, right? <clears throat> Look at verse 4. I have this against you. What is it, Lord, that you have against us? You have abandoned the love that you have at first. Remember that love that Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 6? That love manifested itself in certain things. When they loved Jesus passionately, that love produced things. They, They cared about the things Jesus cared about. They cared about truth. They were willing to serve Jesus. They didn't just care about the things he cared about. They wanted to be involved in the things that mattered to him. And so they served in the cause of the gospel. And they were willing to stand with Jesus because they loved him. Their love for Christ didn't just impel a stand for truth and a commitment to service. That love also drew them to Jesus. And they said, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or what anybody else says. We are with you. And so this love in Ephesians 6 began to produce all of these things. But by the time you get to Revelation 2, all of these things are still happening. They're still standing for truth. They're still serving in the gospel. They're still aligned with Jesus in the face of the culture. But these things have actually replaced something that was over there. If we go back over here, all of those things are are the outflow of something. If you want to know what defined the church of Ephesians at the end of Ephesians, it was this white hot, passionate love, this intense love for Jesus Christ. And that's what produced all of these other things. Somehow by the time they got over here, what defined them were the things 
So what is that church like? Well, they stand for truth. Man, you go to that church. I'm going to teach them right now. Those people take a bold stand for truth. What else? Well, those people, I'm going to teach them, those people, they're not just sitting on a pew. Those people over there, they're actually, they're actually laboring in the gospel. And if you want to know where that church is, they are where the Bible is against the culture. But if you'd have come over here and you'd have asked the Ephesians, the people in the city, tell me about this church, this is what they would have said to you. Those people, I don't get it, but those people are passionately in love with, with somebody named Jesus. Every time you get around them, I don't, I don't understand it. I mean, we persecute them. We ridicule them. We drag them into the arena. We, we make it hard for them, but they are passionately in love with Jesus. If you come over here to Revelation and you ask, what about, what, about, what about the church now? Hey, they're passionately about truth. They're passionately about service. They're passionately about stand. And nobody would describe them as loving Jesus. And the head of the church, Jesus himself, says, you've left this. Do you see the point I'm making? A church like ours can take the right stand, can involve itself in the right service, and we can even be loyal to the truth, but we can miss the first and chief thing. And that's not just true of a church, it's true of a life. And that's why there's a prescription here in this text, and it's very simple, it's in verse 5. Jesus looks at this church and he has commended them. He is saying to them, listen, your, your, your stand for truth is amazing. Your service for the gospel is exemplary. The position you occupy in your culture where you're willing to stand against the paganness of your culture is stunning. But you have fallen away from the chief thing and the chief thing is me is loving me. And so here's what he says. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember back to when you actually loved me. When it wasn't just about sound doctrine and good service and a good stand, when it was actually about me. When you came to church and the, and the primary thing you hungered for was, was me. When you showed up on Sunday morning and you were tired, but it didn't matter because we were going to be together. We were going to worship together. Remember back to when you didn't just love me, but that love for me actually caused you to love the other flawed people in your church who were also loving me. Remember back to when the most important thing in your life, the most intense thing in your life, the thing that mattered to you more than your job, the thing that mattered more than your money, the thing that mattered even more than your service was me. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, we need to do that, don't we? I mean, that happens in our own earthly marriages That's why couples retreats and marriage retreats are so 
absolutely essential in our life because they put our life on hold so that we can come back and give attention to the most important earthly relationship that we have outside of a relationship to Christ. And God is saying to us, look, you need to do this. You need to stop. And you need to step back. And you need to ask yourself a very, very pointed question. What is the condition and what is the place of my love for Jesus? Jesus said, okay, you, you want to go back? So here it is. You need to remember. And then secondly, you need to repent. Once you discover what, is, what has taken the place of that intense love for me, whatever it is has to be removed. It has to be put in its proper place. It may be a good thing that's gotten in the wrong place. It's got to be put in its proper place. Maybe it's, maybe it's a thing that, that is prohibited. That's got to be removed, not just put in a different place. Jesus said, if, if you want to go back, you're going to have to remember, and then you're going to have to repent, and then you're going to have to return and repeat what you were doing at the beginning. The idea here is not, okay, then I'm going to stop caring about truth, and I'm going to stop serving, and I'm going to stop being involved in gospel ministry. That's not the point Jesus is making. He's saying you need to keep doing those things, but you need to do them like you used to do them. You need to do them as an outflow of your love for me and not a replacement of your love for me. And that brings me to the final thing as we close this morning, and that is this. So, Pastor Sam, that sounds great, and that sounds good. But how in the world am I actually going to put feet to that? Because that's kind of where I'm at. I've been a Christian for all these years, and I've been coming to church, and I've let all of the activities the loving activities actually replace the centrality and the intensity and the passion of my love for Jesus, how do I fix it? And I heard Jesus saying, I need to remember, and I need to repent, and I need to repeat. And I'm going to do those things. But how do I maintain this? And, and, and I want to end with this little phrase from Jude. Jude said, Beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude said, listen, my friend Paul spoke pretty straight. And my half-brother Jesus spoke even more straight to you. So let me give you something that will help. And here's what will help. Keep yourself in the love of God. Stay in the bounds. Maybe a colloquial way of saying that is keep your eye on the ball. And the ball isn't your service. And the ball isn't your stand. And the ball isn't your commitment to truth. There's a different ball you need to keep your eye on. And the ball is this, your love for Jesus. Keep your eye on that ball. Because everything flows in your life from that reality. So how do I keep myself in the love of Christ? And the answer is, I need to build myself in the truth about Jesus. This is why 
the doctrines that, that Paul commended them for and that Jesus commended them for matter because I will never love a Jesus I don't know. And the only way I'm really going to know who Jesus is and what he is like is when I come to this word. What I think Jesus is and what you think Jesus is is of no consequence in the building of our life. It's what Jesus tells you he is. And he tells you what he is and what he is like in this book. And so keeping yourself in the love of God means that you keep yourself and you build yourself in the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So you build yourself by means of the faith and then you pray by means of the Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit, Jude said, you know, the Spirit's ministry is consistently to point you to Jesus. Every time you encounter the Spirit of God in your life, he is somehow or another going to get you to Jesus. Even when we pray in the power of the Spirit, how, how does the Holy Spirit tell us to end our prayers? We are to pray whatever we pray in the name of who? In the name of Jesus. You want to build yourself in faith You want your prayers to kindle in you a white-hot love for Jesus. Read your Bible and pray. And wait joyfully for mercy. And that's what Jude says at the end, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You know, isn't this where your love for Jesus actually started? Yes, it was truth about Jesus. And yes, it began with a prayer that you prayed when you asked Jesus to forgive you. But isn't the truth about all of us that our love for Jesus was first kindled when we tasted his mercy? You know, mercy isn't something I deserve. It is something I desperately need and have no access to. And when I really need mercy and somebody gives it to me, I'm profoundly thankful. I'm profoundly grateful. We experience little human expressions of this. Maybe you're on a dark road in the middle of the night and your car stops and it dies and you have no idea what to do and somebody pulls over and helps you. And no matter what you try to do or no matter how you try to pay them, they won't take any money and they just drive off into the night and you get back into your car and you go home and you're safe and you realize somebody showed me mercy. Jesus Christ showed you mercy when you had no hope of mercy. And when you experienced that mercy, you know what happened? It kindled your love for Jesus. And you know what? We get to the place as Christians where we don't think we need any more mercy because you know what? We're actually doing pretty good. We're standing for truth. We're, we're, we're serving in the gospel. We're standing against the culture. Yeah, we needed mercy back then, but we don't really need it now because actually we're doing great and Jesus is lucky to have us on his team. And Jesus said, you just walked away from the very thing that produced all of that white hot intense love for me in the first place mercy you need it i need it and we need it every day and that's why lamentation says his mercies are fresh they're new every morning